You're welcome to follow along on our YouVersion Bible event to see all of the notes and be able to save that and make your own notes. A Pew Research study came out last week that Christianity in America is continuing on its declining trend. The percentage of American adults who describe themselves as Christians has gone from 77% to 65%. (coughs) Excuse me. Representing a 12% point decrease over the last 10 years. Not only has the number of those who identify as Christians decreased, the number of people who identify as either atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular has risen from 17% to 26% over the past decade. In the 1960s, two out of every three called themselves Protestant. Where did they go? Well, nowhere, actually. They didn't switch religious brands. They just let go of any faith affiliation label at all. There's also a new religious group growing on the horizon. They are called the nuns. Say nuns. Last time I discussed this several years ago, you thought I meant nuns, N-U-N-S. That's not what it is. It's nuns, N-O-N-E-S. I wanted to make sure you saw it in writing, not those who wear habits. And within this religiously unaffiliated group, there are actually those three groups of atheists, agnostics, and nothing in particular. The atheists now account for 4% of those surveyed, up from 2% in 2009. Agnostics have gone from 3% to 5% over the last 10 years. And nuns have jumped from 12% of the population to 17% of the population today. Now, one in five Americans, 19.3%, claim no religious identity at all. That's up from 15%. And the even scarier part is that this group is now our nation's second largest category behind only the Catholics and tops even the largest Protestants, the Southern Baptists. This shift is a significant cultural, religious, and even political change. And even scarier than that is that one in three, 32%, under the age of 30 are unlikely to claim a religion. That generation is more unaffiliated than any young generation ever. Yes, so what, you might ask. Some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I'm towards the end of my life, what do I care? Well, the article also says people's religious beliefs and the religious groups they associate with play an important part in shaping their worldviews, their outlook in life, and certainly in politics and elections. And the question you have to ask is, what is going to happen when there is no longer a generation that has any faith-based beliefs at all that they use in making decisions or in their daily living? Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said, This is a wake-up call. We have an incredible challenge ahead for committed Christians. Did you hear the key phrase in there? Committed Christians. When was the last time you shared your faith with someone? It's a hard question. When we don't want to answer many times. 
And I don't mean someone across the pew from you or anything. I mean someone who you built a relationship with and you actually shared your faith. When's the last time you even invited someone to come to church and to be present with you in community? Those are hard questions and the reason the church is dying is because many places are not doing any of that. It is the only reason. We have to be able to share our faith Hopefully we'll do that on Thursday night. Whether you're here with us from the 2,000 plus neighbors from the 37075 that we have who will gather around us and know us as the place to come and, and to be warm and safe and dry. Or at home in your neighborhood. You have the chance to impact every person who comes to your door with more than just the best candy in your neighborhood. How is your light being on in your neighborhood any different from anybody else's light? How are you sharing in some way, giving out love cards, you matter and you're loved by God, or scripture verses, or or just a blessing on someone as they come to your door? What makes you any different than anybody else? Why bother to do it? If it has nothing, it means nothing. It's very easy for us to get in the mode that We just do things because they're programs or because they're ministries. But that's not our job. Trunk or treat could happen anywhere. It doesn't need to happen at church. It could happen down the road. It could happen at the Civic Center. It could happen at a mall. What makes it different that we're a part of? How do we either create a disciple-making environment or leads to a disciple-making environment? How do we help folks know in a deeper way something about Christ from their interactions with our tables, with our trunks. See, that becomes the question. And this week's focus on generosity challenges us to deepen our commitment to witness about our faith and invite others to begin the journey of Christian discipleship. That's what we're talking about. This is true witness. It's not serving. It's not all the other things that we talk about would kind of merge together sometimes. This is pure witnessing in the faith that we have received and we believe in sharing that faith with someone else through words or particular actions. Jesus made it clear that being a fully devoted follower includes our witness. Matthew 9, then he said to his disciples, The size of the harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for his harvest. If you were on a farm and you saw a field that was full of wheat that was ready to be harvested and they just let it die and it just sat there and never got taken care of, you would think to yourself, What has that farmer just done? There's a whole field of wheat that just went to waste. So John Wesley talked about almost Christians. The almost Christian Wesley preached in a famous sermon will attend worship every Sunday, will pray and respect common honesty, will never steal a neighbor's property, will feed the hungry, refrain from cursing or gossiping, and may use time and talents to serve God. That's an almost Christian. 
Wesley talked about himself as being an almost Christian for a good part of his early life. And then Wesley talked about an altogether Christian. And what makes an altogether Christian different from an almost one? Well, Wesley said that an altogether Christian has several additional characteristics. They have a heart filled with love of God and neighbor. They believe the historical doctrines of the church are true. And above all else, they believe the Holy Scriptures are true as well. And they have faith in the saving power of Jesus Christ. Amen? I don't know that we believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ anymore in that way. I think for us it's a one and done kind of event. It happens to us and we say some words and then we just kind of sit back and wait for our ticket punch to go to heaven. However, if you're United Methodist truly in your heart, then you understand that it's not once saved, always saved. That's a Baptist belief. That is not United Methodist. The Methodists believed and have always believed that you work out your faith, your salvation with fear and trembling, awe. That you don't depend on it, that somehow you've got your ticket punched and you can sit back in the airport and just wait till your plane is ready to take off. That you're constantly working out because the gift cost a lot, even though it was free. And so we should never depend on it like somehow we've got in our back pocket. God controls that, we don't. A few words and we act the way we act sometimes in our life do not make up for our entire lives of living towards Christ. You see, living a generous life invites us to start or deepen our commitment to Christ and our witness. Sometimes I think it's really easy for us to think that evangelism is the job of paid Christians like the pastor's. Or some very special people. And there are special people who have that gift. 10% of Christians have the gift of evangelism for the most part. But that's 10%. One out of 10. That does not mean the 10% then are the only ones who witness. You see, because what's really important is you see all the time, like on Facebook, you see these things that say how somebody got to church. And the lowest category of how somebody got to church or came to church is the pastor. You know what the top category is of how someone came to church? Anybody know? No. Somebody invited them, Betty. Somebody invited them. You invited them. That is how witnessing works. It's in relationship. And it comes from people who know each other. That's the big thing. It's not true in the Bible that somehow that's somebody else's particular job. Witnessing and inviting are the job of every Christian to share their faith. I mean, let's be honest. For some people, evangelism has a bad reputation. The word itself is loaded. Lots of us have stories of uncomfortable, even painful encounters. Where a super aggressive person demanded to know if we had prayed the sinner's prayer or we were born again or said if we don't agree with their understanding of the gospel, we'd burn in hell forever. None of that tends to make disciples. So while I'm challenging you to take your witness seriously, I'm not asking you to be aggressive or obnoxious. 
Paul and Colossae had been spending time encouraging the Colossians to live faithfully to what they knew to be true as Christians and not compromise their values, even though those around them were living in very different ways. We aren't supposed to change who we are to fit in to bring somebody to Christ either. Paul says nothing, however, about twisting people's arms, making them adopt our worldview, nor does he say anything about being aggressive and unrelenting and telling others that their beliefs are wrong. Quite the opposite, Paul says this, make the most of every opportunity and let your conversation be filled with what? Grace. Grace. Paul is talking about witnessing through love. Not through condemnation or or even persuasion. You see, Christians have an image problem. And the book Unchristian, when a new generation really thinks about Christianity, that is how the book begins. The authors define those who are looking at the Christian faith from the outside as outsiders. It's a broad and inclusive term that includes any and all who are not Christians. And then the book unpacks the results of research regarding the ways the outsiders react to the Christian faith. See, these outsiders think Christians no longer represent what Jesus had in mind. That Christianity in our society is not what it was meant to be. Paul understood this in his day as well. In Colossians 4, 5, he says to the Colossians, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. He knew perception was not good for them. There's a cartoon illustrating this whole idea. It has two guys dropping boulders on top of a a mountain on people below and clubbing those who disagree with them. And the caption reads, And the best part is you can crush everyone from up here. That is how the world looks at us as Christians. When we are offensive and taking the moral high ground. One offense can pretty much undo any previous good by anybody. When Christians behave badly, we alienate the very people God wants us to woo and win for Christ. Amen? When you have that fish on your car and you get on the interstate and you decide to flick the person off next to you because you're mad at them, you have just undone every bit of witness anybody else had plus your own. It doesn't matter why. If you're going to put that fish on your car, you better decide to act a certain way. Otherwise, take it off your car for God's sake. When you wear your cross around your neck, you wear the symbol of, the, of who we serve. When you dress in your Good Shepherd shirt, what you do and what you say reflects back on us every single minute you have it on. It's a lot of power. It's a lot of stuff to take on, but that's how it works. We bear the mark and the image of Christ, and we carry that. Whenever we show that as being a symbol, when you see a truck that on the side of it has the fish on it, and it's going to go to the plumbing or whatever it's going to do, there's a certain identity associated with that that can be good or bad. We are judged by our actions. By our temperament. Colossians urges us to begin with praying for God's guidance. And then it says, living our faith 
not talking about our faith. That we are called to live our faith out. Calling yourself a Christian doesn't really say anything if you don't act that way. Any more than calling yourself a car means you get to live in your garage. Do you act that way? Do you really follow the tenets of Christ? Do you live according to what he actually has said to us about loving our neighbor, loving God, loving ourselves? When we live exemplary lives, we earn credibility and then we can speak with integrity. If people are not asking you more about your faith, then it probably isn't showing much in your daily life. Ouch. If they're not asking about your faith, then you're not showing any faith for them to ask about. Because if you were, people would ask. They'd ask questions about why do you believe that or what do you think about that or why. If people who know you in some way have to ask if you're even a Christian, you're on the wrong place. If they got to ask you where you go to church and they're close to you and you have a relationship with them, you're in the wrong place. If the only way someone thinks you are a Christian is because you wear a cross or a Christian t-shirt, something needs to change in your life. Lots of folks wear a cross nowadays and it means absolutely nothing but a piece of jewelry. Even wear Christian t-shirts. Because they look cool, but they don't live them out. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Amen? To let your light shine before people. You see, our opportunities to witness come out of our relationships. That's why we need to make connection with people and that there is power in connection and in relationships. We were at our uh, Davenport family reunion yesterday in Kentucky and gathered together. And as we gathered together, there are two people in our family who are actually missionaries overseas in a country in which Christianity is outlawed. And so you can't even talk about Christianity or be missionaries. So it's all not talked about. And they're, and they're over there trying to build relationships. In the city that they're in, they are the only, the only white Americans in a city of half a million people. Half a million. And we're talking about just the fact is that some people thought at first they were at the CIA that was being sent over there, and their friends who are uh, uh, from that country said, that makes no sense. If they're going to send the CIA people, they'd pick somebody who looked like us and then send them over so they could infiltrate us. They would not send white people who look totally different than us to come over and be with us. And the older ladies gather together and they question and they think and they're like, what's going on? And, and they have jobs over there and everything and, and raising their kids there and, and all these pieces and, and they're doing all this and they, don't, they can't have a church. They don't invite people to come to church. They're sharing their faith through witness. Everyday conversation. Just sitting down talking to people. Not a plan. Not chapter 2 in the book of witnessing. Just getting to know people. And, and they ask the question and they're talking about, you know, is it really making a difference? We believe God's called us to do this, but it's slow work. And, you know, and I said, well, you know, you never know when what you do is going to be the salt in someone's life that makes them thirsty for something more. I mean, in these, these countries around the world where Christianity is outlawed, it's easy to say, hey, go ahead and give your life to Christ, but that means the loss of your family, the loss of your home, it may mean the loss of your life. 
Most of us are Christian by virtue of the fact that we grew up that way or somehow have some connection to that, or at least it's not outlawed so we don't feel like we're persecuted. How many of us would actually be Christians if all of a sudden we found ourselves losing our home or our family or even our life? It's a very different witnessing kind of thing. And so we just don't know how a relationship's going to take. Christ is going to use that relationship. And I told them that. And they, they felt blessed that their work they were doing was important and was a part of Christ's plan for them. And at the retreat last weekend, we talked about time. It was all about time. It's about time. And so we're looking at time in the sense of how we use and misuse our time which is chronos. Say chronos. Chronos is clock time in the Bible. And what do we need to be most to be to be generous in our witness? What do we need most to be generous in our witness is time. Witness is all about time. Time to build relationships. Time to talk. Time to carve out of things we wouldn't normally do because it doesn't happen just on its own. It requires time. You can't do witnessing without taking extra dedicated chronos time. And Paul says about our witness in Colossians 4, 5, make the most out of every opportunity. Another way to say that is buy up every opportunity to collect them all. You see, chronos time speaks to time as duration or a period of time, like setting our clocks back next week, which we will do. When opportunity presents itself, you have a limited time to make a decision and act in chronos time. But the word for opportunity that Paul uses here is another time word. Kairos. Say kairos. It speaks of an opportunity as a point in time. An opportunity is a point in time that requires action or the opportunity will be lost. A kairos moment may be thought of as a God moment. A particular moment. Susan, my wife, and I have very different ideas about shopping for food. She shops on a weekly basis. And when I used to shop, I'd go to Sam's and buy the largest quantity of something. Even if you don't need it for two years until it all goes bad. But you're going to buy it in bulk. It's a better price and you get that big deal on it. I'm also the kind of person that goes on the internet and has all these kind of websites about finding the best deal and the best price and the, the code to be able to use to save 20, 30, 40, 50%. And you got to make sure you strike the, the deal's hot because if you don't and the deal expires, you're like, oh, no. I forgot to click the button on that one. You seize them in the time or you lose them. In our text, the idea of buying up or mark, making the most of opportunities is not bargain hunting, but it's connecting with others in good and meaningful ways when opportunities present themselves and not missing them. Waiting for the right time. And the question I usually get is, when is the right time? When's the right time to talk to somebody about my faith? The answer to that is, it could be any time. It could be any time. When a neighbor wants to chat, chat. When you have an opportunity to volunteer in elementary classroom or go on a field trip, volunteer. When you have an opportunity to send a note of encouragement or a card to a colleague or a neighbor who is going through a hard time, sit down right then and be Christ to that person. Do not wait because if you wait, you will forget. And then you will think about it and you have forgotten it and it's too late because you missed the right time. Amen? 
When you have an opportunity to mediate and bring healing to situation and conflict, to be an agent of grace in your community or your workplace. You see, when we fail to act, when we are presented an opportunity to connect with another person in a way that demonstrates the love of Christ, we miss our opportunity of Kairos. You never get that back. Kairos moments are particular moments. Colossians also says in 4, 6, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. And that makes you think about, Jesus said, I, you and I are be the salt of the earth. But think about what salt does. Salt gives flavor to food. It preserves food to keep it from decaying. We need salt to be in our bodies to live. But there's one thing that salt does that really gets my attention when we talk about witness. What is that? What does salt also do? What? Cures you. I heard something else over here. Thirsty. Thank you, Teresa. Thirsty. If we all had some salt right now, I should do that sometime, just bring a whole bunch of salt and we all have to eat salt. Right now you're, probably already, you're already thirsty now because I have to mention salt. So you're like going, now I'm really thirsty. I'm sorry. Salt makes us thirst. It makes you thirsty. And you have to ask yourself the question, have we ever made anybody thirsty for Jesus? Have you ever made anybody thirsty for Jesus? To know more about Him because of what you said or because of what you did. And we might think, well, it doesn't matter much. He doesn't really care about that, really? Because I'm pretty sure the last words He gave to us all over the pages of the Gospels were all about things like that. Matthew 24, 14. This Gospel of the Kingdom we proclaim throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations. And then Jesus told us that when the Holy Spirit came, we would have power not only to communicate the good news of Christ, but to live lives under the power influence of God's Spirit. When he said, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power, and you will tell people about me everywhere. As the choir sang, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Amen? That's the words he left. And the Spirit of God gives us the power to woo people, to influence them, make a difference in their lives. The Spirit of God gives us the power to gently convince them of the life-changing difference that Christ can make in a person's life, not by threats or browbeating or coercion or persuasion, but by wooing and loving. Another way Colossians 4 or 5 says it is this, which I like, your speech should always be gracious and sprinkled with insight so that you may know how to respond to every person. You may not think you have any power or influence in your neighborhood or your workplace or the marketplace or even this church, but you have the power of God's Spirit within you and working within through you to woo your world to Christ by how you live, without ever saying a word. Preach the gospel. Use words necessary. You have the power to connect people and to be able to love them. You have the power to be gracious in every conversation. And you have the power to tell your story when given the opportunity. And to close, there are many scriptures that talk about our witness. But 1 Peter 3.15 really makes me think the most. It says, Instead, regard Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts 
Whenever anyone asks you to speak of your hope, be ready to defend it. This is the scripture, folks. This is our call to be able to answer for what we say we believe, for what we say our hope comes from, to anybody who asks at any time. Are you ready to do that? Can you really speak about what Jesus really has meant to you and is doing for you? You know, what was life like before Christ and now after Christ? Are you ready to really speak that to someone if they asked you on the street or in your house or in your neighborhood or at a restaurant or wherever it might be? A Mercedes-Benz TV commercial showed a Mercedes slamming into a cement wall during a safety test. We've all seen that before. And someone asked the Mercedes company spokesman, why do they not enforce their patent on the Mercedes-Benz energy-absorbing body, which has been copied many times? And the spokesman said this, because some things in life are too important not to share. Romans 10:15. how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the good news. Christ is too important not to share. Think about in your own life how Christ has impacted you. We heard the words from James, and you may not know James, but many of you do know James because he kind of goes across both services. But James was becoming a Christian in his teen years. And then life got in the way. And he never finished. And then he found this church, which was by driving by. But when he came in the doors, driving by didn't keep him here. The people of this church did. They spoke to his heart. They have cared for him. How many of you stopped and prayed for him when I sent the text on Saturday and, and you knew at 1.30 he was going to be going, they were going to be going in in that moment and, and every, many of you stopped. And you've loved on him and his daughter and, and you've cared for them and been present with him during his time in the hospital and everything else and he found community and he found love and he found forgiveness and he found new life. Many of you have those similar stories at some place, whether that's here or somewhere else. You came to Christ or involved in the life of faith because you found that same thing. Why then would we possibly not want to share that with someone else? Or act like somehow that it's their job to go and seek it out. And if they happen to get lucky, walking around blind in the world, trying to find a few crumbs of bread, then that's on them, it's not on me. Has the church sunk so low that we no longer think that anybody needs what it is that we found and think is important in our life? That we're not even willing to have conversation with anybody about our faith, even in the simplest forms? Christ is too important not to share. Say that with me. Christ is too important not to share. Say it again. Christ is too important not to share. One more time. Christ is too important not to share. And so our closing hymn is a hymn that sometimes becomes really hokey over all the years. We've sang Pass It On so many ways around a campfire, it's not even funny. We lose the meaning of the words, but I really want you to focus on the words and not even your experience of the words, but the words. So let's stand and sing this 
1970s hymn that we sometimes think is some newer than that. And listen to the words that we're really singing and what you would want someone to do for you if you were looking for Christ in your life. happiness that I've found. You can depend on him. It matters not where you're bound. I'll shout it from the mountaintop. Praise God. That's all from camp. I want my world to know the Lord of love has come to me. I want to pass it on. This song was written the year before I was born. And yet this song was also part of my faith journey around those campfires at the Wesley Foundation in college when I came to Christ, never having been in church my entire life. If someone hadn't reached out and spoke to me about the faith and hadn't shared the love, then I wouldn't be here. Because there was no church in town. They didn't come out to my house and say, hey, come be a part of us. They didn't reach out beyond their doors. They drove to church every Sunday, went inside, and went back home. The kids in school didn't invite me to go to church wherever they went. It was the folks out of the Wesley Foundation a plain pool in the back room who said to me, we want you to be part of us. We want you to go on choir tour with us. We want you to sing about Jesus. We want you to learn what the faith is all about. It's our job, folks, first and foremost, to share God's love. Because you never know who's out there who needs to hear that word the most. And 
none of us are exempt from sharing that word. Amen. Go forth into the world. Be his witnesses. Wherever you go, share his love wherever you're bound. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.